Would you turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 23? We're continuing our studies in the Gospel of uh, Luke, and uh, we'll read from verse 32. So, uh, Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, And offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word. Let's just uh, come before the Lord in prayer and uh, ask him to bless our time together. Heavenly Father, we uh, praise you for uh, your word. We thank you for its inspiration. We thank you for its authority. We thank you that this is the way that you speak to us, that you speak to us through the Scriptures. And we ask that you would do that this morning as we think and meditate upon your word, that you would take it and that you would apply it to all of our hearts. We remember those that uh, are not with us today. Uh, We think of Alex and Macrofeld, and we pray that you would be with him, uh, that you would encourage the people through him as he ministers your word there. We think particularly of those who have been bereaved. We think of David and Alison. We think of Ruth Cameron. And we do pray that you would draw close to them, that you would surround them uh, with your love, and that you would give them grace to help them in their time of need. We thank you that uh, we have this assurance that those who die in the Lord are absent from the body and present with the Lord. And we pray, O God, that that thought might be a source of great comfort to a grieving family uh, today. So we look to you and we pray, O God, that you would meet with us and bless us today for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, you'll remember from uh, our studies over the last number of weeks that we stood back and we took a panoramic view of these verses from verse 26 through to 49 uh, and uh, uh, took a, a broad look at the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. And then we began last week to zoom in uh, to particular incidents in, in the events surrounding the cross. And we did that by uh, looking at the things that Jesus said from the cross. So last week, we looked at the first statement that he said um, when he uh, said, Father, prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, And then secondly, he says in verse um, uh, 43 to the dying thief, uh, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And then finally, he says 
at the end of the section, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, we know that our Lord said seven things, spoke at least, he maybe said more, but seven recorded statements uh, from the cross. Luke records three of those, and we're zooming in on those three statements uh, in our studies. And we come to these words uh, this morning to the dying thief recorded for us there in verse 43. uh, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was the ultimate insult for uh, the Lord Jesus to be crucified between uh, two criminals. Uh, And yet those companions in the suffering uh, of our Lord are very significant, not just because Isaiah had prophesied 750 years before that he would be numbered with the transgressors, but that those two men would be representative, would be an illustration of the subsequent division that he would bring uh, in the world in terms of people's relationship to him. We're told in verse 33 that Jesus was crucified in the center with one of these criminals on his right and the other on his left. But we need to understand that he not only uh, divided them geographically in terms of their location, but he divided them spiritually in terms of their destiny. And as we look at these two men this morning, I want to, you to ask yourself which Which man represents you? At what side of the cross do you stand? And I want you to notice three things. The similarities that united them, the grace that distinguished them, and the promise that separated them. So first of all, then, the similarities that united them. These men, it would seem, had a lot in common. Notice both were wicked men. Verse 32 tells us they were criminals. The authorized version says malefactors, literally evil workers. Matthew tells us that they were thieves or robbers, which is probably too weak a translation. Uh, It would be better uh, rendered as violent criminals. Uh, Since these men were dying by crucifixion, Uh, They were guilty either of treason or murder or perhaps both because uh, treason and murder were the two capital offenses under Roman law. So they were wicked men. They were men who had uh, blood on their hands. They were men who uh, took part in a a violent insurrection uh, in Jerusalem. They were wicked men. But not only were they wicked men, they were blasphemous men. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who uh, were hanged reeled at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, that word reeled, the uh, NIV says hurled insults, is actually the Greek word for blasphemy. They blasphemed him. They blasphemed our Lord as he hung upon the cross. What a terrible thing to say to Jesus. If you are, in other words, you might not be, but if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But you see, it was because he saved others that he couldn't save himself. 
His going to the cross was part and parcel of God's great plan to rectify and to deal with the problem of sin. That if ever sin was to be forgiven, a sinless substitute had to be found and our sin had to be led on that substitute. And the fury of a sin-hating God had to be unleashed on that substitute. And since he was the only one that wasn't directly descended from Adam in terms of the, the, the line back to the Garden of Eden in that he was born of a virgin, he was that sinless substitute. He was holy in thought, word, and deed. And there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate and of heaven and let us in. And if anyone was ever to be saved, Christ as a sinless substitute could not save himself. So this was the worst kind of blasphemy for these men to say, save yourself and us. Now it's interesting that Matthew tells us explicitly that both criminals that were crucified with Jesus initially insulted Jesus in this same way. If you turn back to Matthew chapter 27, and in verse 44, we read, And the robbers, plural, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In other words, both initially heaped these blasphemies upon Jesus. They were wicked, blasphemous men. Both insulted and blasphemed the Lord Jesus. So both were wicked men, both were blasphemous men, and both were dying men. These two men's wasted lives were quickly drawing to an end. Their lifeblood was literally uh, seeping out of their tortured bodies and hell's mouth was yawning to receive their souls. Now, you would imagine, wouldn't you, when a person is confronted with the ultimate reality of death, that that in itself would mellow them and soften them to spiritual matters. But not these men. In the midst of their pain, their suffering and humiliation, they summon the strength to revile and blaspheme against Jesus. You see, death doesn't always soften people to the eternal realities. Joan Crawford apparently said to a Christian who visited her uh, just before she died, Damn it, she says, don't you dare uh, say anything about God being there to help me. Christopher Hitchens, the journalist, said, if you, if you hear that I've converted to Christianity on my deathbed, and remember he was seriously ill, he says, if you hear I've converted to Christianity, I'll only have converted because it's better that a Christian dies than an atheist. And Karl Marx, when somebody came in to record his last words, says, get out. Dying words are for fools who haven't said enough during their lifetime. Death doesn't always soften people to eternal and spiritual realities. I have a close friend, and uh, he was converted in his mid-teens. His father was very disappointed in him, was very, always very hostile to Christianity, a professing atheist, and uh, this friend of mine went to see him on his deathbed, and he was praying that somehow God would soften him to 
the gospel, that he would have an opportunity to share Christ with him as his father faced the prospect of a, a near eternity. And uh, so Jeff very gently and very uh, uh, carefully and, and sensitively raised the issue about eternity and about Christ. And his father flew into a rage, sat up in the bed, spoke some words, and fell back and died. And you know the last words that that man had on his lips before he passed into eternity? He said, damn your Christ. And he fell back and died. What a terrible thing. To the very last words on your lips before you enter eternity are cursings for Christ. And then you wake to discover in eternity that the one that you've just cursed is your judge. So here were uh, two men, two men who had a, a lot in common. They were wicked men. They had blood on their hands. They were blasphemous men. They both heaped insults upon Jesus, and they were dying men. The prospect of eternity stood before him. They were uh, they had a lot in common, the similarities that united them. However, the second thing I want you to notice is the grace that distinguished them in verses 40 to 42. Let's just read those verses. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, one of them is converted. One of them is changed. Jesus says to one, uh, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Only one. You know, uh, J.C. Ryle's great comment about uh, that. He says, in Scripture, we have only one deathbed conversion recorded for us. One that we may not despair, and only one that we may not presume only one that we may not despair. It's possible God can break into a person's life in their dying breath and bring them to faith in Christ, but only one that we may not presume. So, one of them receives this promise, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise, but only one. I remember this one had started out the morning heaping these insults uh, upon the Lord. What brought that change? What gave him that assurance of heaven? And, and the only explanation for that is the, the grace of God. Grace broke into his life and brought a change in him. Um, it, it must be grace, absolutely must be grace, because there was no work that this man could engage in. There was no right that he could observe. There was no religious community that he could join to um, merit the favor of God. He was completely dependent upon the grace of God. Now, what is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. God in His justice gives us what we do deserve. God in His mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. And God in His grace gives us what we don't deserve. 
Gail's favorite musical is Les Miserables, and I think she's dragged me along three, perhaps four times to see it. Not the film, because Russell Crowe's a bit like myself. Um, for me to sing and lead worship would be a complete disaster, and for Russell Crowe to sing uh, the lead in that film was a complete disaster too. But you, so, been three times, twice, even in Broadway in New York, I have fallen asleep watching that film. It's the dearest nap I ever had. But, um, but uh, she, she likes the film. And you know how that film begins then? You have Jean Valjean, who, uh, in desperation uh, to feed his family, breaks into a church and steals the silver of the church. And he's apprehended by a policeman uh, who brings him back to the church. And the priest in that church says, no, no, he says, uh, I, I gave him the silver. I gave him the silver. And then he goes and he, he says to Jean Valjean, he says, you forgot to take the candlesticks too. And he takes the two silver candlesticks and he, he, he gives them uh, to Jean Valjean. And uh, that's an act of grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What did he deserve? He, he deserved to be prosecuted. He deserved to be imprisoned. But not only is he allowed to keep what he's taken, but he's actually been given more. That's the grace of God. Grace is getting more that, than you deserve. And when grace broke into this man's life, there are three evident changes that take place. First of all, a fear of God comes over him. Uh, the, he says to the other thief, uh, don't you fear God in verse 40? Don't you fear God? You see, as he stood on the brink of eternity, contemplating the ultimate destination of his soul, thinking about the God to whom he was answerable for every deed done in the flesh, this fear of God descends upon him. Grace broke into his life, and the first manifestation of that grace was this fear of God. He realized there was a God with whom he had to do, that there was a God to whom he was accountable. There was a God to whom he was answerable. Remember, Jesus said, uh, do not fear him who can, give the, uh, who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And there is such a thing as a healthy fear of God, that you realize that God is holy, that God is righteous, that God is perfection, and that God is just and must account for every sin ever committed in the world and must punish that sin. And that you dare not enter eternity without having that sin forgiven and yourself made right with God. Fear of God. Secondly, there's an acknowledgement of sin. Uh, you, you say, see that in verse 41. Um, uh, he says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. That Jesus was sinless. That Jesus was perfect. And they were the ones who were guilty. They were the ones who uh, had sinned. And admitting that we're sinners before a holy God, that can be a very painful and difficult thing to do because our, our pride refuses 
to, uh, refuses us to allow us to acknowledge what we actually are in the sight of God, that we are sinful people. That's why Pentecost Sunday, we, the unbeliever, needs the work of the, the Holy Spirit in his heart so that he can see his sin. The Puritans used to say a sinner is a sacred thing, for the Holy Ghost has made them so, that they, they f- a person needs to feel their sin. They need to see their sin, because up to that point, they're often blinded to their sin. I was preaching in Macrofelt last week. There was a retired Presbyterian minister in the congregation. And he, he came up to me and he says, Stephen, he says, I, I didn't recognize you. And I said, uh, because of the face mask. And then he pointed at my tummy and he pointed at my head, the bald head and the fat tummy. And he says, that's why I didn't recognize you. It was a, kind of an insult. But, but anyway, I said to him, if you had seen me six months ago, I was a lot heavier then. But but he didn't recognize me, but sometimes we don't recognize ourselves. That the God who is altogether holy, that the God who peels apart the veneer of our external goodness and weighs our inward motives, this is the God to whom we are accountable. The God who said through his son that if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he's already committed adultery in his heart. Or if he's hatred in his heart, he has already committed murder. This is the God that we're answerable to. So, this grace broke into his life. There is this fear of God. There is this acknowledgement of sin. And then there is this faith. He says… to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Calvin says there's no greater example of faith in all of the New Testament than this. Because here is Jesus at his weakest. The only thing to indicate that he is a king is the the, uh, sign that was nailed above the cross uh, by Pilate in order to get at the Jews, and the crown of thorns that was pushed upon his head in mockery. He's bleeding. His, um, his body is battered and bloody. And yet, this, this man has faith to believe that the one who was hanging upon that cross was a king with a kingdom and that he would actually live again after his death because he would enter his kingdom. Do you you see his faith that he sees Jesus as he is, as he was, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he looks beyond his present suffering, and he sees him as a king who will enter his kingdom, a a king who will die and rise again and bring his subjects into that kingdom. That's great faith. So here is this this man who is dying, and he uh, begins the morning by insulting the Lord and uh, hurling these blasphemies at him. Grace breaks into his life. Did he deserve it? No, he was insulting the Lord. Grace breaks into his life, brings about this change so that he fears God. There is a God to whom he's answerable, that he 
uh, sees his sinfulness in a way that he never saw it before, and that he exercises faith. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And of, of course, that, that, is, that is how we're all saved. Uh, by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. How am I saved? By acknowledging my sin and I'm putting my trust and my faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we can be sure that we will enter that kingdom by faith and by repentance and faith, by facing up to the problem of sin and putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you know faith has three important elements to it. Faith is being acquainted with the facts of the gospel. So that you know that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's, that's faith. You, you need to know that in order to be saved. You need to know um, that, that he uh, came into the world, that he died upon the cross, that he suffered and bled and died to take away sin, that on the third day God raised him from the dead as a great act of vindication and acceptance of the work that he had procured upon the cross. So you need to know that. Secondly, you need to believe that. You, you need to say to yourself, well, yes, that's true. I believe that. I believe those great facts of the gospel. But not only do you need to know them, not only do you need to believe them, but you need to rest in them. And that's the key. Because remember, James tells us that even the demons believe and tremble. So they believe and, and tremble. They have a faith. They have no problem with the gospel. They have no problem over the facts of the gospel. They're not disputing the facts of the gospel. They believe in the gospel. They believe that uh, the second person of the Trinity enfleshed himself and came into our world and died upon a cross. They accept all of that. But you need to, to, to procure that, to rest in that for yourself, that you believe that's true for you, that he died in your place, bore the punishment for your sin, and by resting in Him, all those uh, sins can be forgiven and taken away. So, we have the similarities that united them, the grace that distinguished them, and the promise that separated them. Uh, Jesus says to this man, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know how the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, pervert uh, this statement by punctuation. They, they uh, translate it like this, uh, today I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. So that the statement that he makes is today, not the uh, reality of paradise being today. But, uh, but the New Testament confirms to us again and again that, that when the believer dies, he immediately goes to be with Christ. Now, there is a future bodily re resurrection. There is a, a new creation. There is a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness that is ushered in through the second coming of the, the Lord Jesus. But when a believer dies, here and now, that believer goes immediately into the presence of the Lord. Paul writes to the Philippians, and he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Well, how could, if the Jehovah's right, uh, Witnesses were right, how could 
dying and going into a, a state of soul sleep, of unconsciousness, how could that be better than uh, enjoying fellowship with Christ and with God in the here and now, even though that fellowship is marred by our ongoing sin? How could that be better? It must be better because there's a conscious enjoyment of Christ on death, immediately in the presence of Christ. Paul speaks of, in Second Corinthians 5, of being absent from the body and present with the Lord. And he says to this thief, I tell you the truth, or amen, literally, amen, truth. That's what amen means. And when you, you add your amen at the end of a prayer, you're simply saying, true, true, that's true. When you shout out amen in the service, you're saying, that's true, that's true. But Jesus says, amen. You will be with me today. You will be with me in paradise. Now, that word paradise is a, a beautiful word. Uh, it's actually a Persian word. Our Lord was probably trilingual. Most people were trilingual in those days. You remember the notice above the cross was written in Aramaic, the common language that Jesus spoke, Latin, the official language that, uh, that the Romans used, and Greek, the common language that everybody used. And when Jesus is looking for a word to sum up the glories and the wonders of heaven to this man, he ransacks the Aramaic language, and he can't, can't find a suitable word. Uh, he, he looks to the Latin language. He can't find a suitable word. He, he looks to the Greek language, and there's no word that in one word conveys the, the true wonder of heaven. And so he reaches all the way down to Persia, present-day Iran, and he plucks this word out, and he says it's paradise. And this word paradise was used by um, the kings of Persia, the emperors of Persia, when they would build uh, special gardens for themselves, and they would wall them for security, and they would irrigate them, and they would imp um, uh, import from all over the known world luxurious plants and uh, trees, fruit trees and animals, and they would put them all into that garden. And the most special thing about that garden was that the king took his very special guests into that garden, that the presence of the king was there. And so when Jesus wants to convey to this man what heaven's like, what's going to happen to him when he dies, he says, it's paradise. It's a secure place. It's an awesome place. It's a wonderful place. It's a place that is far beyond our wildest expectations, but most glorious of all, it's the place where I will be. That's, that's the, the wonder of that statement, the greatest truth conveyed in that statement. It's not just the word paradise. It's, it's the word, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember that um, Philippians verse that I quoted, I desire to depart and be with Christ, with Christ, which is better by far. Why is it better by far? Because you're with Christ. Or 
John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. With me. That's, that's the glory, the wonder of heaven, that we're with Christ, gazing upon His beauty and His, His glory, worshiping Him without the distractions of a sinful nature and wandering thoughts. I love the story of uh, William Mont- Montague Dyke. He was the son of uh, Sir William Hart Dyke, who was Chief Secretary to Ireland at the end of the 19th century and also a privy councillor. But uh, uh, William was injured as a boy, and it left him blind, so he he couldn't see. So he grew up in a state of of darkness. And um, when he was just about to be married, there was a surgeon that came along to his father, and he said, look, I think I could perform an operation that would restore your son's sight. And so the operation was performed. It was close to the wedding. So on the wedding, William standing at the front of the church with bandages uh, around his eyes. And just before the bride came up the aisle, the surgeon came forward and snipped the bandages and took off, took the bandages off, and he could see for the first time. And as he turned to watch his bride coming up the aisle, he said, she's even more beautiful than I imagined even more beautiful than I imagined. Well, do you see when we get to glory, when we stand in the presence of Christ and gaze uh, upon that unveiled glory, He will even be more beautiful than we ever imagined. More beautiful than we ever imagined. So this man who was one moment heaping blasphemies upon Jesus, in a moment is transformed, and his future is to be with Christ in paradise. The promise that separated them. Uh, Do I need to remind you that this man was converted? He received this promise. He was brought into paradise, but only him only him. The other one wasn't converted, wasn't brought into paradise, and didn't see Christ. What happened to him? Well, that's the tragedy, that he was in the presence of Christ. He heard the change in his friend, and yet he went to that place where the Bible says the worm dies not and the fire is not And that's why it's so important that you don't know what a day brings forth. It's so important that today, if you hear His voice, that you harden not your heart, that you realize that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There is a way that is opened that we may go in, but it's at Calvary's cross where we begin when we come as sinners to Jesus. And I would urge you and I would plead with you, if you're, if you're not a Christian today, that you seek the Lord now while he may be found. Because this man, 
in close proximity to Jesus, died and went to hell. This other man, even though he was a great sinner, he knowledge to sin, fear of God, knowledge to sin, and put his trust in Christ. And that very day, he went to paradise with Christ. The similarities that united them, the grace that distinguished them, and the promise that separated them. Amen.